seems like every local in the valley here has a mountain bike. This sport is really exploding. I break the law. I ride an illegal trip. And it's getting away from the cops, the cars, the concrete. Those Afaka is a Chinese down here. Using snowboarders together on a run, you're looking for trouble. You know, they get on skis and they just think they can overcome the world. The more you get around, the more you're going to find out. I like to think that death is out of the question. The life starts at 40 miles an hour. You ride the chairlift for two or three weekends and you have to go like climb hills all week just to be even with God, you know? Welcome to Mind the Track with Pal Bot and Trail Whisperer, ramblings from the skin track in winter, single track in summer, celebrating the core lords and fostering the culture of mountain life in the Sierra Nevada and Great Basin. Today is January 16th, 2024, and you're listening to episode number 30. Thanks, folks, for listening to Mind the Track. We really appreciate all the input that folks have had, the great comments, and if you like what you're hearing, share us a message. Uh, DM us on Instagram. You can email us at mindthetrackpodcast at gmail.com or just go to our website at mindthetrack.com and let us know what you think of the show. And while you're at it, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to Mind the Track because that is what helps us get found. And get this show into the ears of more core lords out there. We're recording today here in Tahoe Donner at the Powbot family cabin. And of course, as always, next to me is the professor of the Pow, the director of the Powder Intelligence Agency and the United Shredders of Snow, Mr. Dr. Powbot. What's up, buddy? What's cracking, man? I'm smelly. I'm wearing clothes that I've been wearing since Sunday. It is now Tuesday. Yeah, that's we're we're winging this one in our uh, in our stinky gear. Stinky winging. We is just what we, call this. we just walked out of a hut trip. Yeah, and uh, took our beacons off. I literally had it in my pocket until five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, and I remembered you, to turn it off. You remembered to turn it off. Yes. Yeah. So I had a I had a friend that told me that last year the, he would walk around Mammoth Brewing after after the day of shredding and yeah. would turn his beacon on and then find people in the bar that hadn't turned their beacons off oh walk, that's good like, he walks right up to him walk up to him and be like found you <laughs> that's a good one i gotta remember that one <laughs> it's good to remember to, to turn your beacon off though so totally save your batteries yeah save your batteries and sure and on that note replace your batteries Every year. Well, you well, should always carry extra. So that's going to be another. There's lots of things that we've been taking notes on for this episode. This is kind of a quick and dirty episode where we had we just like Tom mentioned, we just walked out of a two night stay at the Frog Lake, the Frog Lake Huts um, yep. right off Donner Summit um, that we're going to talk about in the episode today. Um, but, yeah, we just came out from that trip. And since Tom's leaving tomorrow for Japau for three weeks, we figured we needed to get a, a recording in before you. Yep. There's been a lot happening departed. in the snow world. And there's a lot that's gone down since we last recorded last week um, in kind of like right before things got real weird. Um, and so we want to this week, you know, talk about some of those things. And mm -hmm. a lot of this conversation today is going to be related to snowpack um avalanches preparation 
knowledge, all those things. And then we're going to talk a little bit about our Frog Lake hut trip since it's fresh on the brain. Yeah. Um, since we just came out of there. And uh, but before we do that, I do want to uh, th- again thank folk, thank folks for reaching out, um, sharing feedback with us. Um, the crap my pants story was a hit. A lot of people got a laugh out of that. I got messages from a lot of folks. Um, Your honesty was very appreciated <laughs> on that one, Kurt. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and and people seem to dig the longer format episodes, like. One guy, I can't remember, it might have been a guy named Philippe who emailed us, was like, uh, hour long, hour and a half long, it, it's all good. As long as you tell good stories like Kurt crap in his pants <laughs> and I laugh my head off, like, it, it, you can talk as long as you want, as long as it's entertaining. Someone else so. reached out and said, just as long as Snoop's on. <laughs> there you go. Don't get, don't, get rid of, don't get rid of the Snoop report. Yeah, so... We got the Snoop report this week. He's uh, he's he's still a contributor to the show. Uh, at least he basically time came along for the, the hut trip with us. He he kind of did. Yeah, he's he out was there, there shredding the cream cheese with us. He was. Yeah. Uh, and before we get into snow, um, I do want to give a plug for a little project that I had going on um, over the well the last several years. We've talked about it a few times. The Toyabi Crest Trail out in Central Nevada. Uh, last Thursday was the uh, premiere of the latest Wild Nevada episode on PBS Reno. So for all you public uh, broadcasting fans out there, uh, PBS Reno has a show called Wild Nevada. It's been going on for a couple decades now, on and off. Great show. Talks all about the history of Nevada and just like cool places to go and things to see. And I uh, got the opportunity to be a co-host of an episode with uh, you got Chris to be, Orr. Got to channel your inner inner Hewlhauser. I did, yeah. I was like the Nevada Hewlhauser walking around. With look like, at this place. Hey, well, you just look at that? I mean, just look at Could it. Could you just imagine if we built a mountain bike trail over that mountain? It'd be amazing. <laughs> Yeah, so it was really cool. It, it aired last Thursday. You can find it on the web now uh, on PBS Reno's website. Uh, and it's an episode about the Toyabi Crest Trail project that I've been working on. And the drone footage that they captured was like really just, it kind of blew my mind because I've never really seen that much drone footage of that region, that area. I mean, I've spent a lot of time there, but like when you put something up in the air, like you, you Tom, you've videoed like droned, our rides there Mm -hmm. and just the terrain it opens up a whole new perspective of that place um and it was of course after a huge winter so everything was super green the water all the creeks were pumping um so the footage of the show really came out awesome and it was fun to just kind of relive that uh, couple days that we had out there in the toyabi anyway it for folks who are interested How, how, how can people watch it uh, just go to PBS Reno's website um, and 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 type in Wild Nevada, okay, uh, and you'll be able to find it. I think there's also if you if you get PBS Reno, you might even want to look up like their um, their programming schedule because they they play it a few times. Um, so uh, I don't I don't know when this episode of the pod, this pod episode is going to go live, but um, anyway, you can just go to the website and find it uh, and. F- for folks who are interested in volunteering or coming out to the Toyabi, uh, I'll yeah, be back give, out there in the summer. Yeah, I'll be out there in the summer again. We're continuing work on the trail. It's always great to get new folks out there who've never been there. The camping's 
spectacular the terrain everything the experience is pretty cool so uh for folks who want to participate drop us a message email uh dm you know get in touch with us and i can i can uh put you on our on my little and you you're pretty much doing one a month out there with the big volunteer crew or you're out there a little more but you'd kind of do one big one a month or we did three volunteer weekends last this past summer Okay. Um, but next summer, there I'll probably just have one volunteer weekend because I'm going to be doing a lot more work with the crews, like the Nevada Conservation Corps oh, okay. is going to be out there next summer. So I might do one, maybe two. But uh, yeah, uh, to TBD on those weekends for dates because it based on like kind of winter, we're going to get out there. I mean, so far it seems like there's now it's snowing. Um, but it was very dry for a while. <laughs> they actually might have more snow out there than we do in Tahoe. Who maybe. Knows? I mean, maybe, kind of, but probably just as sketchy of a snowpack, yeah. if not oh, worse. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, enough of that. Uh, today, we're really more focused on, we had a few people reach out. One of, the, one of our listeners actually sent um, a message to us, uh, Austin, who it was just asking about like, you know, the whole snowpack situation. You know, we mentioned it last week. We tried to sound the alarm, or at least I did. Yeah. And I sort of, I think, mentioned, I think a little bit that I was sort of surprised that more people in North America in the avalanche and snow forecasting world and avalanche forecasting world weren't sounding a bigger alarm because we were really primed to have the cycle that we've had this week. Uh, But I think that that alarm got sounded a lot more as soon as the cycle started. And we we had the accident at Palisades, particularly here in the Sierras. I think that that, that one put everybody at notice extremely quickly because it happened in inbounds at a ski resort that, you know, that's not, it's a rare occurrence, but it's not something that doesn't happen. Right. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think that as soon as that happened, the alarm went out and then it was just, you know, reports of avalanches coming in from every, everywhere, everywhere. every slope, every state, every mountain range. Uh, it got real and it still sort of is. I think it's tone, you know, it's come down a little bit here in the Sierras now this week, but I think Utah's still in the mix right in the middle of it. Yeah. And the, the rest of the snowpacks in the interior Rockies are, are touchy and they're getting more snow. Yeah. Jo- I saw Josh Dyack just, uh, who we had on the show a few episodes ago, just had posted a comment. who's like sketchiest avi conditions I've seen in Tahoe. Yeah. This, I think that it's this is some bad. of the sketchiest conditions that I've seen as well in 20, yeah. f- over 20 plus years of skiing in the Sierras. Wow. For sure. This last five days has been really, uh, it's been a curveball. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was, we had like buried facets on a, a, the January 2nd layer, which was the storm that came in right around New Year's, you know, buried some facets and there was so a tell- little bit of a, of a rain layer. And it just like it's we have a snowpack like the interior interior ranges do. So let's for listeners who are maybe newer to snow, because um, we're going to throw out some terminologies and mm-hmm. some some words that maybe people aren't familiar with. Just What's a facet? A facet, a facet? A facet is is re. It's it's basically like frost. Yeah. That forms on the top of the snowpack. Yep. 
because there's water transport water's moving through the it's it's the water's moving through the snowpack from the bottom to the surface cold Mm -hmm. air is drawing out water Mm -hmm. and it's refreezing on the surface and it creates those little feather crystals it's kind of like the feather crystals that form on your windshield right there's a temperature gradient like the inside of your car is warmer the outside of your car is colder that moisture freezes to your windshield similar sort of science behind that yep but facets are when this water transport happens through the snowpack and then that refreezes on the surface and creates basically feathers it's a crystalline feather and then that's there on the surface and then it gets buried by the next storm and in the sierras we typically don't see that because our storms come in wet and they come in heavy with wind and a lot of times when we have facets on the surface of our snow in the sierra they get broken down. Mm-hmm. The, the wind breaks them down and the sort of heavier snow, especially when our storms come in right side up, those facets get broken down. And right and, side up, you mean like come in wet, finish com- cold? Yes, come in warmer, warmer and wetter and finish colder. Yeah. And I think I, I, I was up in Shasta, so I, didn't, I, I wasn't quite aware of how that New Year's, post-New Year's came, storm came in down here. But I think that it basically those facets got buried and preserved mm-hmm. so to say you'll see that in nomenclature sometimes in forecasts when they say that a facet layer is preserved and it, and facets form from extended periods of dry weather yes yeah yep yeah that's when they get the worst yeah because there's nothing that's coming to break them down yep yep so you had kind of a layer cake of danger right you had uh, a kind of a sugary uh, rotten as they call it base like at kind of almost ground level with the snowpack yeah and we should talk about that one layer a bit. halfway up you know that's but that was an interesting one because we went into the cycle i think here in the sierras with especially here in tahoe it, you know it was a real issue i think it's more of an issue down further south but everyone was really concerned about the basal facets which were all of that faceted snow from our dry spell and the, the early fall and into the early parts of winter mm-hmm. and that we had faceted snow all the way at the base of the snowpack. Yeah. And that was kind of what everyone was alarmed about. But as we went into this cycle and we got more snow that the January 2nd layer was the one that was more of a concern. And that's what we've seen most, if not all of the results happening in Tahoe has been on that layer. Yeah. And it just sort of depended on where, where it was and how much snow. I mean, we've seen the worst results of that, of that layer in areas along the Sierra Crest where there was heavy snow load. Particularly, I think we saw that one on Mount Lowell that those snowmobilers came upon and it was a huge six foot crown. So it kind of, it sort of has depended on how much new snow was loaded onto that layer. But uh, yeah, so that was kind of the, those were the ingredients. And I think that we tried to sound that alarm, you know, when we had that episode. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, it was just super unfortunate for the first sort of, accident to come in and it came in from an inbounds accident at at palisades and there were multiple burials and they unfortunately had had one person perish in that in that avalanche yeah inbounds at 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 palisades and i'm going to share a a story and i think we'll put a little perspective on the fact that inbounds avalanches are are rare but they're they're totally not uncommon like they happen yeah uh i've been playing in the snow for 25 years in the backcountry. i've been around a lot of avalanches i've 
triggered some myself. I've been partially caught, but I'll say that the only time that I've ever been fully buried and in that kind of trouble was inbounds at a ski resort. Really? Yeah. Inbounds. Inbounds. Inbounds Sugar Bowl. I think it was 2004, five or six, five, six, six, seven, somewhere in there. It's the first three, four, five years that I lived in North Tahoe. And we had been in the midst of a giant cycle. We got 20 feet of snow through Christmas and New Year's. And it was New Year's Day at Sugar Bowl. And Ski Patrol had been working very hard to get the mountain safely open. And they had done that. And uh, they had did a late opening of the 58s at Sugar Bowl. And the 58s, that's like lookers right on Lincoln. Lookers right on Lincoln border of it comes up against the Palisades. It's kind of their best terrain off Lincoln. Right. And, uh, I think that the, that storm, the last storm in that series was a full 72 inch storm. It was six feet of fresh snow Mm -hmm. came in cold, good right side up, but it was a huge storm slab and they had done their control work. And my crew, it was myself and two partners. We had jumped into that terrain right away. And we were riding inbounds with Beacon Shovel Probe. Uh, because we, at that time, I was doing a lot of side, you know, we would sort of shred Sugar Bowl as we would ski the resort in the morning and then maybe do backcountry in the afternoons. Mm-hmm. And so it was very common for us to have our, our full kit. Yeah. Be skiing inbounds with our full avalanche kit. Anyway, they, they opened that train. We immediately went into that train, went in far skiers left. I went and far skiers left it's all the way to the boundary of where that train is and sent a line called the bottom of it's called 23 foot gully. Uh, and, and it has that name because the, that, that whole feature went at one point in a storm and the crown of it was a 23 foot crown God. at, you know, and it's right at the border of where the 58s turn into the Palisades. Anyway, we had gone over there and, uh, we were nervous. We were still skiing in bounds and we're nervous we're skiing with gear and, one of my partners had posted up in a position on the 58th. So, so he had a visual of me skiing it. And as I was skiing out the, the bottom of that line, it's a pretty committing line that requires a straight line at the end. And as I came flying out of it, I heard someone yelling, uh, up to my right. And I turned and looked behind me and there was a wall of snow barreling at me. And I was like, Oh God, here we go. And I got caught up in an avalanche and drug downhill. I think about 50 to a hundred feet, 200 feet to where that terrain sort of benches out Yeah, and, you know, bounced off a few smaller trees, oh, there's but a lot then, of trees down you know, there. didn't really hit anything. Yeah. And, uh, and in that moment I, you know, I knew to try to get a hand up or swim or, you know, you do all of that stuff. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, as it's settling to, you know, try to push something up and I was able to push a hand up, I was fully buried, but the tips of my fingers, the tips of my glove were up. I, but I did not know that. Did you have an air pocket to be able to breathe at all? Or were you, do you have snow in your mouth? I, so I had a full, uh, you know, neck gaiter with goggles helmet. And so I didn't have, luckily I, I did not have snow in my mouth, but I was fully buried. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my partner that had eyes on me saw my glove immediately came down and grabbed my fingertips. But between that amount of time though, I say that I did have some good, uh, 
I guess, good feelings of the fact that I knew that I was wearing a beacon, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that yeah. kept me from panicking. Yeah. And, uh, and I knew that I had partners that had shovels yeah. and probes. And so anyway, they came down and I felt them grab my hand. And then at that point I was like, okay, just relax, you know, don't fight this. Just try to conserve your oxygen, breathe slowly, relax. And, uh, I was dug out, extracted from that, from that burial and was okay. And as I'm sort of brushing the snow off me, I look downhill another, I don't know, 30, 40 feet. And another friend of mine, uh, was digging with a shovel and, uh, and I, I also knew what had happened. I knew that it was the feature that's called the pyramid. And I, you know, when I got hit with that wall of snow, I was like, oh God, the pyramid went. Because it wasn't, I didn't trigger anything when I skied the line that I was in. Yeah. So anyway, I got out of, got out of my hole and was like, oh my God, that was a pyramid, huh? And it turned out that the pyramid had released when another skier was airing into that feature. And he triggered the slide and was not caught in it but it caught me and right at the bottom of all that train is a catch line. There's the, it's the, you know, patrol does their work and then there's only one way out. There's, it sort of turns into some flat terrain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's only, there's a, there's a catch line that you have, especially in a deep day like that, there's everybody rides one catch the line, same line, same yeah. line and yeah. then you traverse back over to the groomer and then you come back to the chair. Anyway, what, what ended up happening is that there was, had been another skier that had skied further right of where we were at or there were the two groups of people that were now involved in what was happening. And unfortunately that skier was in the catch line. He saw the avalanche, he saw it coming and he laid down uphill. Oh God. When the slide got to him, he didn't let it hit him, which probably would have been a better outcome, but he laid down uphill and all of that snow then moved over him and buried him deeper than I had been buried. I'll say that. And he, was extremely lucky that again somebody had seen yeah, where so, he got buried yeah so i knew the other crew of people that were had also been skiing that feature and they were wisely doing the same thing we were one person was set up had eyes yeah the other skier committed to airing and the pyramids are kind of this it's a techie line you have to commit to sort of airing over a small like a little gnarled tree and it's like a 15 foot air into then a really steep panel mm -hmm. that's shaped like a pyramid and historically, Sugar Bowl had up to that point, I don't, it was such an awkward feature, like you can't get to it, so you can't ski cut it. And I don't, I don't think until this, till this accident that happened, they had never really historically thrown a bomb on that feature. But it had been built up with enough snow to do what it did, which was bury two people inbounds. So anyway, I sort of brushed the snow off of me, realized what's going on. And what had happened then is that the person spotting the pyramid skier had visuals on where this person was and blindly was like, this is where he's at. We're going in here. And, and I'm not sure if he pulled out his beacon to check initially, but they were already committed into digging in that spot. So my crew came over and we jumped into a shovel rotation with them and started digging and we got lucky. We ended up finding a ski and that was an inter interesting lesson for me to be a part of an extraction because one thing that I learned is that you don't know health from high water of where someone is, is even as soon as you start getting body parts and, mm -hmm. and equipment. Right. Like we got the ski and then it took us a while to figure out the orientation. 
And then we started getting down further and further and extracting this gentleman. And uh, as we were doing that, he passed out. We, oh, we saw his extremities sort of panicking and go through the you know panic thing, and then they eventually slowed down and then passed out. And we worked really hard to get him out. And uh, I was upside down in the hole when we finally got down to him. And he was blue, asphyxiated, sort of sort of an awkward thing going on with his mouth and tongue. Uh, you know, I th- he had a you know gag reflex from having you know not being able to breathe. And uh, I shoved my fingers in his mouth and opened his airway. And I counted, and I think it was about 40 seconds, 45 seconds after opening his airway that I saw him take a shallow breath. And then he took another, and then it was the period of time short, and it was 30 seconds, and then 20, and then he eventually, the color came back to his face, and he opened his eyes, and we were just like, yes. Wow. <laughs> Thank wow. God. Thank God. So still, Ski Patrol had not shown up. This was, you know, we were quick, but, you know, I don't even... I can't remember if someone skied out or not or what happened. But was this uh, a full storm day? So it was hard, low vis? It was, I think it was sort of in between storms. It wasn't Bluebird, uh, but it yeah. wasn't hammering. Okay. You know, I think it was an in, it was in, in between storm had finished, new storm was coming in without much of a break. So you're it far was, enough away from the chair that nobody on yeah, the chair no, could no, see, see what was going on. Yeah. So anyway, we pulled this guy out. His name was Ted. We, we nicknamed him Almost Dead Ted and, uh, and pull, pulled him out of the snow that day and saved his life at Sugar Bowl inbounds. And uh, it was, to me, it was just it's such a stark thing in your face that, like, a ski resort is not what you think it is. You know, they can do all the control work you, you, you think that is making everybody safe, but you still have to put your head on a swivel, be smart, maybe ride with your gear, you know, and I think a lot of people do that, uh, particularly at resorts that have open boundaries. And that was one thing that I found surprising at the Palisades accident is that there's a lot of us that ski and snowboard Palisades with a beacon, but we don't have a shovel or a probe there because it's, Palisades doesn't have an open boundary. And any other resort in North America, you know, when I lived in Telluride or when I was in Jackson Hole, it's very common to ski inbounds because maybe you're going to go out of bounds in another hour or two. And so you have your gear with you. Right. But Palisades is a unique situation where when that accident happened, people were digging out the victims, or not victims, but the unfortunate people that were caught in that avalanche. They were using their hands and their snowboards and mm-hmm. whatever they could find until Ski Patrol got on scene. And that's, it, that's an interesting thing. I think that's an interesting dynamic of that accident is that it's not part of the culture at Palisades to ski with your backcountry equipment. Right. And, right. and I, and I, and I think the reason behind that is because they don't have an open boundary and I'm <laughs> advocate. I would, I would be, I think that would be a good byproduct of Palisades opening, eventually opening their boundary is that they would have a bunch of really exper- I mean, there are so many experienced people that are at that mountain. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. You know, Jeremy Jones was there yeah. with his son skiing KT that morning but they didn't have their gear with them. Maybe they did. I don't know. I, I, I didn't quite grasp that from his, from his post about it, whether or not that, that they were riding with their gear or not, but it's, 
That's an interesting thing about Palisades is that you don't ride with your gear there, but you sometimes you ride with your beacon, and that's still that's that's better than not. Having yeah, because anything. the so the reco thing that you find in clothing like pants or jackets, like what what a what uh, value is that? Like, is that going to save your life? No. Where, it won't. I don't think so. I think Reco is just simply for recovering bodies. Yeah. I, I, you can't get that equipment onto a scene fast enough. Yeah. And, you know, you need to, an avalanche beacon and someone that knows how to use it is yeah. what's going to save your life in an avalanche. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't think Reco does anything. So in, in the... In that's, the... But that's, <laughs> that's the personal opinion of just me. What What is the... Yeah, and I think we should preface all of what we talk about. I'm no expert, we're, but I do have an opinion. We're just having a conversation about this. We are definitely not the experts. And, and in a future episodes, we actually will have experts on the show yep. to talk in more depth. But I think that we wanted to seize upon this opportunity to just have a conversation about this since it's fresh on the mind. It just ha- A lot of the stuff has just been going on. We just came out of the backcountry this morning and had seen – I've seen – more activity than I've ever seen in the backcountry in Tahoe yep. um, in the, just that short two days we were out there. Um, but like for you in the wake of that Sugar Bowl um, incident, like what cha- did anything change or did your mindset skiing in bounds change? Did you change your approach or your mindset to skiing in bounds after that incident? Yeah. Th- uh, you know, I think that it's really good to learn lessons from all accidents that involve avalanches. So yeah. it's good to, you know, study it, read it, understand it, debrief when, when things happen. And, uh, from that one, I just really debriefed on the fact that I need to have my head on a swivel at a ski resort and, and be sort of my own ski patrol at times. Uh, you know, and the, and the, the accident at Palisades was a little bit of a different situation because it was such a big feature that went, you know, it was a, a fair amount of terrain. It wasn't like a one person triggering a, a, a zone that had, that had loaded up, which is what I think had happened there. I don't know. That, that's another thing with that accident is that we're not getting any details on it. And it was weird too, uh, because it happened but, 30 minutes into, it was at 930. Mm-hmm. People had already skied it. G- I had friends that already had done three laps. Yeah, so morning. GS Bowl is the main bowl under the chair at, at the top of KT, and people had already been skiing it before it went. Yep. And that is the same exact thing the next day at Alpine Meadows, the Wolverine Bowl. Yeah, they had a small pocket. They had a second inbounds post-control avalanche at Alpine at Meadows. At 12.30, people had been yep. skiing it all morning no no one was caught in that accident but i think that that was a little you know it's, it's just, wild it's just a we're, we're we have a wild snow it was wild there. man yeah. and and yeah and like i think you know you talk you talked about your experience uh at sugar bowl and i ski sugar bowl a lot and and that terrain man lookers right of lincoln chair is real terrain and there's like micro mm-hmm. there are micro lines there that you know they might only you know they might be like 40 you know 40 degrees and and um with a feature or like you know the shallow areas where a snowpack can step down and i'll never I, there are days where they open those gates and i go in there and i go to ski a steep line and i'm stepping over to to line it up and all of a sudden i see a shooting crack and a slab out in front of me in bounds yep and the thing is that is a red flag 
right out of the gate, like, be heads up. Be heads up. Head on this, the swivel. They can't, they can't avalanche control every single inch of the mountain. And they've generally, you know, de- deemed it safe. But th- there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees. You and have I, to be paying attention. You know, and I'll say that a lot of years that I have ridden KT, which has a lot of zones that can catch you by surprise, even post control, that, you know, I've, I go into zones, particularly the rock garden, that, you know, will load up during a storm. No one goes in there for an hour, and then all of a sudden you're the first person in there, and there's a little bit of a fresh wind load, and you have to ski cut it. I think it's a good thing to you know, for people to have their head on a swivel and then also go through all those other things, maybe ski with a partner, make, make sure you're skiing with a partner yeah. on a storm, on a, on a storm day at a ski resort and keep your eyes on your partner. You know, I think we all get a little complacent, like no friends on a powder day and just start going mock chicken right. and ditch our friends and not, you know, see at the bottom. Right. And, uh, you know, I remember when I first started getting into, into my powder addiction and it was in Colorado. Like we would always wait these, we would do these long extended tree runs and it was always, you know, part of the, the culture to just always wait at the, when you came out of a tree run to wait there and make sure everybody came out. Because if you went down to the bottom and hadn't waited there and your friend didn't show up, you then really didn't know where they were. But if they didn't come out of a particular section of a tree run, then you could just go back and, retraced your steps and you sort of had it and you were able to narrow the area down or where maybe someone was missing. So it, it's just good to keep your head on a swivel and play smart, even inbounds at a ski resort. Well, like the first thing that I think of when you say that, um, especially in the trees, we don't have to deal with it as much here in the Sierra, but definitely like in the Pacific Northwest and other, you know, Oh, the tree well, is tree wells are deadly. Yeah, like, they're real. Remember that video from Mount Baker last winter, yeah. that skier that was like GoProing his run through the trees and just so just like by the luck, the greatest of luck notices something sticking out of the snow ever so slightly and realizes it's a buried snowboarder upside down in a tree well. Yep. Had that skier not skied by that exact spot at that exact moment, that person probably would have died. Mm-hmm. And it's like super duper important on those types of days, especially if you're skiing in the trees, to have eyes on at all times. Yep. And employ like the, the AO method, you know, which yeah. you'll learn that from all the guides up in Canada when you go cat skiing or alley skiing or you go to a hut. But, yeah, you know, they, they will t- typically have you pair up, which is what we always do and yeah. skiing anywhere. You know, we did that over our last trip to Frog Lake. You know, we didn't want to be seven people all skiing a slope at the same time. So right. we would sort of split up and go into groups of two and three. So we're not putting as many people on the slope mm-hmm. and, uh, and then use the AO method and sort of every, you know, and we used radios, but you know, letting communication is, and keeping people within visual sight and, and sketchy avalanche conditions is, is a big important aspect of things. Yeah. 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 And knowing uh, how to use the gear, right. And knowing how to use the gear. Yeah. I mean, that, that was another thing I wanted to bring up is that, you know, as we've gone into this cycle, like it's a really good reminder for people to brush up on their skills. I, you know, I'm not a real big fan of the airy, <laughs> the, the way the education system works here in the United States. I think Canada and Europe have a way better system. Mm-hmm. 
And if you really want to take a good avalanche course, like going to Europe or to Canada and taking their level one, will get you above and. And why do you say uh, that? They're just way better because I, I think that they, there's there's more focus on terrain in 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 uh, in both of those area in both Canada and Europe. Like you you get a better handle of understanding terrain than you do, sort of like you know the American version of like there's a there's a, just a little more book work I think in the U.S. and 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 a, more of a focus on snow science, mm-hmm. which is great, but terrain is really important. And like, uh, and to I, me, it's terrain, terrain, terrain. Well, I've learned this. I it, no, I, I think since skiing with you, what I've learned from you is you manage to safely ski even on days where it's like considerable avalanche danger. And I, you know, I I'm, I think to myself like, how is he able to confidently do that? And like you mentioned, it's it's all about terrain, mm-hmm. managing terrain that you're in and knowing where that terrain funnels out and not getting yourself into situations where you're in a terrain trap or you're in an overgrade slope or terrain that's above you terrain yeah, yeah hanging terrain yeah, people well, i guess i guess the bit variable is people right cuz you could have people above you i guess the question is are you in terrain where if someone is above you it could slide on you do you find yourself in those situations ever I try not. <laughs> I try. That's I try. why you wake up at That's, four in the morning. Yes, I try to get out in front of everybody on that one. But yeah, yeah to me, it's to, anyway. It's a train, train, train. But to turn it back to, uh, you know, a few other things about the. I, I, what I was going to say is that the Airy does offer like a level one, one day rescue course, which I am a huge fan of. Okay. And uh, you know, if you can get into those, they're kind of hard to get into these days. But like, just t- doing another, you know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have a- avalanche experience and have taken their level once, but it's really good to brush up. Yeah. And take a, the the level one rescue course day, the one day course is a great way to just go out and practice with your beacon, practice with your practice with your friends, pra- practice with your beacon, and also maybe learn some of the newer uh, techniques of probing and probing and shoveling because there's been a lot learned in that in the last few years yeah some some of the protocols of that have changed and and they you know this the they've been able to look at statistics and realize what are the better ways and that's and that that bit of that has been changing every year mm-hmm. so it's good to take those courses I, I think that's a good thing to to sort of bring up in that uh or just go out and practice with you know practice with your friends yeah practice with your beacons it's important yeah so, I mean, we've been dealing with this uh, kind of historically unstable snowpack in the Sierra Nevada and it, most of the American West. What's the next? Like, we've had some wet storms. It seems like while we were out at Frog Lake, I, it seemed to me that the snowpack stabilized. Things flushed and the snowpack seemed to stabilize. Yeah, SAC put the... How are you feeling out there SAC after put that the, trip? Yeah, so SAC put the rating at moderate while we were out there from considerable. And, and I felt that that was appropriate. And, I, you know, we having a warmer, wetter storm... Uh, can was good for uh, our snowpack in some senses like it, it flushed some of the big dangers and uh yeah that was that's i'm feeling way better about it here at least i think that other parts of the the, the western mountainous zones have they still have some high risk and they're also still getting huge amounts of snow uh they're still in the midst of their cycle uh I think that our this next cycle that we're going to have are going to it's going to be much warmer and and I think that we've already gone through the worst of it here. What does Snoop Pow Dog think? Oh, are we? 
<laughs> get the handheld. So yeah, we're yeah, we're doing this handheld since we don't have uh, any of our like we don't have any of our gadgets. We got our basic so we're gonna, rig I got a, here. He he left me a voicemail. I'll just say that he left me a voicemail, okay. and then I can hold up my phone and play the voicemail. Let's so. let's hear what Snoop Pow well, Dog has to okay. say. All right, here we go. All you corn lures out there. This is Snoop Pop Dive with a weekly Mime Z track. Snow Sizzle, my Dizzle Potterific Snow Report for January 16, 2024. Okay. Since I last checked in, the SpongeBob cold snap has flipped into a series of warm storms for the west side, leaving the lower elevations looking like the Grim Reaper came through with a blowtorch. However, the smart shredders have been playing safely on a platter of cream cheese in the higher elevations of the Sierra. Hopefully all you core lords out there was able to get some from these last storms and fully enjoyed the cold smoke blower bluebird day we had last week and some sprayable cream cheese later this week. The last week has been a mixed bag of nuts and has had its moments of surprises, tragedy, and fun days if you knew where to look. Keep playing it smart and safe and respect the mountain as she is an original gangster and can turn on you faster than a crip on a blood. Forecasting farther out, I see in the crystal snow globe ball that all areas of the west side continue on catching up on the slow start to winter and are in for another powder jam. Particularly this week, Utah and the Pacific Northwest continue to stack power along with the Sierras in the higher elevations. This G is out of here. I'm jumping on a jet plane. And I'm off to Japan where it's really dumping like a sumo wrestler after his morning coffee. Till next report, get some. So Snoop Dogg's going with you? <laughs> yeah. He is. He loves he's he loves the chase. Yeah. Yeah, Snoop Snoop will be along for the ride. Yeah, so you're leaving for Japan tomorrow? Tomorrow tomorrow afternoon, flying out Thursday. And this is your first time there? First huh? time there. Oh, speaking yeah. of Japan and Japao, I just looked out the window. It's start, starting to snow. Some big flakes. Big fat flakes, wet ones probably. Yeah, first, cool. first trip there. You know, All right. I'm gonna go go experience that place for my first time. I'm really excited. Well, we're gonna do a call in. We we figured out a way to call in. Every episode we've ever done, every interview person we've interviewed has been in person. That's kind of how we like to do it because it just is a conversational. I think there's some kind of magic in an in person conversation that you can't really gain in a yeah. kind of phone call. But like, I don't know. I think you and I have that relaxed ability to just flow even if we're on the phone so we're gonna have powell bob we'll call a, in give from it a Japan. give you the hakuba report the hakuba report yeah man awesome. yeah so you know i, I just want to circle back on the on palisades real quick and just say that you know i do not fault ski patrol at all i was actually on my way to ski that yeah. morning and uh i was there i was in my car on my way there and got got some text messages that you know something had happened and that they were shutting the mountain down and so i diverted and went to north star just to get a couple hours worth of skiing in that day but you know the kt runs on storm days that's just what happens uh, i don't fault them at all like it's it's you know i stand with ski patrol i'll just say that uh and that you know it was it was an accident and uh and you know that that one is out there and I think that the community's been really good about supporting them, uh, and 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 the decisions that they made. I don't think that there, there's you know I don't think that there are some people pointing fingers, and I think that there are, have been some other instances where you know people have done 
done dumb things like the like the guys that went up and toured up onto Mount Rose Ski Resort when it was closed a number of years ago and tried ski to the shoot tried to ski into the shoots Dr. Rope and, was, yeah, you know, and the mountain was closed and they triggered an avalanche and, and the gentleman from Santa Cruz perished and his family sued Mount Roski Resort and it took them a couple of years to sort that one out and, and they did not win, obviously, on that one. And and I think that, you know, there, there may be some contention on what happened at Palisades, but, you know, we all want the mountain open. And uh, and ski patrol works really hard to do that for for the for the core lords and the frothers and and you know that's you know it, it is what it is and I <laughs> I was going to be there uh, so you know I, I I don't fault them at all and and uh, and I look forward to heading back there and shredding KT my at my next opportunity. Yeah, all, all I would say to that is. First and foremost, Ski Patrol does not get paid enough for what they do. Yeah, that period. Too. Yeah. Like just it's kinda like our, you know, our conversation with Todd Woodward about firefighters. Like, you know, these 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 are people on the front lines, the first responders, and like they're not getting paid what they should be getting paid for the work that they do. Yeah. Um that's number one. Uh I, I do wonder, I, I guess, I, I, and I don't want to armchair quarterback these kinds of things, man, because it's like I have no place doing it. But I do question, I have a question, like, why would you open KT? Like, because this was opening day yeah, for the, for the lift, for the season. And it was like a storm day. The winds were ripping. And the next day was going to be bluebird. It was going to be a perfectly beautiful, clear. And the thing for me coming from the media world is like, if I'm like wanting to capture opening day on KT and I want imagery and photographs and people shredding and, and I'm like, dude, the next day is going to be perfect. Like let the storm do its thing. And the next day is going to be clear and beautiful. We can get photos. Like people are going to be there. Like, so I guess my main question is like, why did, why Wednesday and not Thursday? Like the thing's been closed all season. We've had kind of a bummer start to the winter. Why rush it? I, because, I mean, I want. That's to, my question. Like, I wanted to ski it. I wanted to ride it that day, and you know there were a bunch of people there already having laughing and having a good having a good time. And yeah, you know, and yeah. I'll say that Ski Patrol had yeah. done a, a bunch of work prior to that. They had the mountain ready. And, you know, and I, I think I would, I, I'll have to say that I think I would form a little bit of a different opinion about the Palisades accident if, if, if SAC was allowed to report on it and we could, and I could actually look at the oh, details. Because it's inbounds are not allowed to, re they don't no, report like, on there it. There has been no public information made available of like what actually, what actually happened. happened. What, what did it go on? Was it just new wind load? What, like what actually happened? Yeah. We don't know. No details. There's no details. Well, there's gonna, there's, I mean. You know, There's probably going to be a, a litigation, I would imagine. Yeah, and, so and they're they're protecting it. themselves from that yeah. one. But I want to bring that one up because that's something that is in part of the culture of of avalanche world. And I know that Colorado struggled with it. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't quite remember all the details of that accident, but there was an accident that was uh, a couple snowboarders above the Loveland Pass tunnel. And they sent an avalanche down onto the parking area, and I think they damaged a building. Uh, and it sort of started a bit of a conversation about, like, you know, I think that they left the scene, or I can't remember all the details on it, but it very much touched on the subject of people not reporting avalanches 
because of whatever issues, whether there was liability or whether they were going to be judged or it was a pro skier that didn't want the repu- his reputation tar- tarnished or whatever. Yeah. But I, I am from the standpoint that all things should be shared. All accidents should be shared. That that information should be made available. What, you know, whether it's a natural avalanche or a skier triggered or a snowmobile triggered, like there is so much to learn from looking at these the looking from looking at all that on every every incident right and uh you know i i like i if you went back and looked at my text chain from this week you know i'm texting and getting messages from a patroller in heavenly a patroller in kirkwood a former patroller from mammoth like taking in as much information as i can to sort of stay up on you know making good decisions and understanding what is going on and that's you know a big part of sharing of you know sharing information and learning lessons, and uh, and I and I it it bums me out a little bit that there is some culture in this aspect of the avalanche world that some people don't share, and and I think that they're why because they're afraid they're afraid they're going to be criticized whatever the yeah I mean that's I mean at the Palisades accident they're not sharing because the, I think that there's going to be litigation down the road but. You know, whatever the whatever the reason is, I, I think that that needs to be put aside, and I think that you know that there should be sharing. Like if, in Canada, all of the operations in Canada have an inter-share; they share information. All of the CAT operations, all of the HUD operations, and all of the backcountry skiing operations have uh, an information sharing system. What about resorts? Uh, I don't know if the resorts are a part of that. They may be. But they have their own professional sharing system. Like it's a computer thing that they have to log into. And they is that are administered by to, the government or is that on their own? Like their it's, own? it's administered by the government yeah. and they have to be a member of it. And they're required to be a member of it if you're going to operate up there. Yeah. And it just goes to show that there's so it's you have to share information and in, to stay up on 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 making good decisions in the backcountry. And, uh, you know, and I think that there's just a lot to learn from past accidents. And I want to reference the, uh, the New York times article. I think anyone who's listening right now, if you haven't already read it, go back and read There was a New York times article on the avalanche, uh, that that happened on Stevens pass. Yeah. Yeah. I've read that. And a number of years ago it was written by John branch and it was called snow, snow fail, the avalanche at Tunnel Creek, which was a, it's a slack country line off Stevens Pass, but it's an extremely well written article about group dynamics and totally. de- and decision making, yep. and 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 that accident, yeah, and you know things like that are so valuable for people to learn. Yes, and I think that I'll, I'll also throw a shout out that there was a great uh, little edit done by Jeremy Jones and his team. They had an accident uh, in the zone we were just looking at today and on our way out, but they had an accident on the backside of Castle Peak when they were staying at the Peter Grubb hut, I think. I think they were staying doing a hut trip, and uh, they had a burial of one of their team members, and uh, I think that they sort of tried to keep that accident a little hush-hush for a while, but then it came out, and then they released a movie about it, and that's a great thing to go back and watch. Yeah. And, uh, I think if you just go to, go to YouTube, you can go to Jones's site and they have a good, they've got a good edit on that one and just continue to educate yourself. 
Yeah. There's so much out there that you can learn. You can learn from these accidents. Like it's all, it's all not bad. <laughs> you know, I think there's just, uh, I think there, there's like, a lot to learn coming from the mountain bike world and, you know, being more on the dirt side of things, I've played in the snow a lot, but a lot of the first, I mean, the first two thirds of my life, the snow playing has been in bounds. It has not been in the backcountry. And yep. my backcountry experience started 10 years ago, right? Like I've, I'm newer to it. But the thing that I've taken away from doing big backcountry mountain bike adventures and big backcountry ski adventures is it's really hard to die mountain biking. You have to try to end up in a situation where your life is being threatened. It's really easy to die in the backcountry skiing. And you have to have your head on a swivel at all times and be constantly evaluating and questioning, is this a good idea? And I think there are things, right? There's a lot of the, I think you talked about it, like, you know, you can evaluate the inside of a snowpack all day, but like there are, there are, I am a firm believer that mother nature sends messages mm -hmm. all the time about what you're doing and whether or not you should be doing it. And you've got to be paying attention to all the signals in the environment that surround you. Yep. And that's just awareness, right? And that is understanding the signals and taking the cues when they present themselves and being able to deduce. I think I want to say it might have been Jeremy Jones. Somebody, it was just basically like some days the mountain tells you yep. not today. Yep. Other days the mountain tells you, come on in, yeah. have a great time. And you have to know the difference between those two things. Tail Rick with Trash and Treasure on WMTT Hot Country 103. Give us a call. Tell us what you got for sale today. Hey, you're on the air. Hey, how you doing? This is uh, Tony Turbo down there in East Sandwich. Hey, I got this uh, big ag knees tree person tent here. Uh, definitely doesn't fit tree people. Went camping with the wife. What can I say? She hates camping, so it's for sales, okay? Used only once. Because I'm a good fella, be honest. It's got a wee-wee stain in it from my old dog, Rocky. Okay? 200 bones, it's yours. We'll trade for a decent lawnmower. Call me at one 2 3 4 5 6 7 All right! Tony Turbo and East Sandwich has a not-a-three-person tent with a wee-wee stain for sale. $200 or trade for a lawnmower. Ring them up at one 2 3 4 5 6 There's a better way to buy, sell, and rent used outdoor gear. Sendy, a new peer-to-peer -peer online marketplace backed by Cam Zinc and Travis Rice. Built by athletes for athletes, Sendy is committed to providing the outdoor community with a high-quality hub for high-quality gear. Sendy provides a safe platform for buying, selling, and renting, making sketchy meetups with shady characters and seedy parking lots a thing of the past. Sendy uses integrated and discounted UPS rates, QR codes, and print-ready labels, shipping anywhere in the U.S., with Canada coming soon. Download the app today for free at the Apple Store, Google Play, or visit sendy.io. Buy it, sell it, rent it, and send it with Sendy, charter partner of Mind the Track. Now, back to the show. Yep. And I think that our trip just today and the last three days was a great example of that. Yes. So let's recap that one a little bit. Let's talk about the Frog Lake Huts. So, that was a fun trip. You know, and I'll, and I'll apply some of this to, you know, the 
uh, to avalanche awareness and and sort of how we mitigated and and sort of managed our weekend out there. But we walked out there on two days. It was just two days ago. Sunday. So Sunday morning, we uh, we actually we like we were trying to figure out logistics to get up to because it's not easy to get to the frog lake yeah let's bring that one and we'll give a shout out to ryan fowler from dirt gypsies yeah so dirt gypsy adventures here in Truckee. ryan fowler he's a core lord and and has a shuttle business and is actually running shuttles for you know mountain biking and, and a lot of different things but um particularly uh accessing the frog lake huts yep and um, the, the best way in there is going from castle going from it's, the it rest actually, area it's actually it's going open. from the rest area at castle on which, i-80 you know we used to go out we used to ski from there all the time to ski the back of castle and park there but they don't really let you do that anymore so you have to ski you have to tour in from the the snow park at boreal right but the logis- the logistics of that entry have have gotten a little wonky because you can't one you can't leave a car anywhere in Truckee overnight right right now right we went through that whole conversation again on this trip and decided to then leave it at my at the family house here and then we had ryan pick us up and shuttle us to the rest area and i say after going up there the last three years that's totally the way to go into frog lake it's so easy if any listeners are going into frog lake just call up fowler get him to just pick you up at your house in Truckee and drop you off at that the rest area and then he can pick you back up yes it's a really logistically easy way to go to do that it's a logistically easy way to start and finish now once you're dropped off at the summit yeah (laughs) it's up to you yeah um and there is there is avalanche terrain to negotiate there are there are there's no easy way to get to the huts and uh, there's a pretty established route in there there now that is an established route but Dude, I mean, our way in on Sunday, like, so when you and I were out there last year, it was, we came in uh, right before storm. Between storms. Between storms. It dumped on us for three days while we were there. We didn't see a hundred yards further than our hand for three days. And we skied and it was amazing, but everything was filled in. So you didn't really have to worry so much about how you approached because everything was go. But this time around, like it was shallow in spots, yep. like quite shallow. Like it involved some good route finding to get we in there. We had to do some route finding to get in yep. there. But I will say though, too, on our on our entrance, we did experience some boom thing. Yeah. We had, you know, that was one red flag, boom, right there. We had some settlements happening on yep. lower angle terrain. We were triggering some boom thing. And uh, you know, that made me sort of you know, we're going to keep it mellow the first day. When you say thing, for those who aren't familiar, what does that mean? That is an audible sound and or feeling also of the snowpack settling. and Around you. Around you and, and a, sometimes a large area. Sometimes it can be hundreds of feet, you know, and, and if it's on terrain that's steep enough, that could technically then slide and yeah. break. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of times it happens in lower lower angle terrain when you're ski touring. And uh, it's a, just a great indication of that there's instability in your in the snowpack. Yep. Okay. And it's an audible sound, and okay. it's spooky. A lot of some people need to change their under, underpants after a large <laughs> settlement sometimes. Uh, but yeah, you know, to me that was a red flag. Just reel it in. So we experienced some moomfing on the way in there, and you know, got in there at a reasonable hour, and then went and had a good, fun afternoon skiing, some safe, mellow terrain. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there was. You know, it's a little bit of a bigger pitch on our second run that that afternoon, but uh, we definitely were not tickling anything big at all. Right. 
uh, on the first day just to sort of make sure that we were playing it safe. Yeah, there was there were some red flags and there had been some big natural avalanches. Big the, ones, the yeah. The backside of Castle Peak had ripped almost feature to feature. The whole thing went uh, naturally overnight that the night prior. And then there was also a big loaded cornice area that's uh, there on the approach that had gone naturally as well. Uh, so yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's two signs and as soon as you start stacking signs, you wheel your program back. Yeah. Uh, so we, we kept it mellow. We skied in on, a on that, on Sunday then and got some skiing in and really enjoyed the hut. That hut is amazing. Like Frog Lake hut. I'm spoiled forever. I don't think I might, it's I'm a really to, cool like, setup. Be like a hut. Uh, snob now someone's like you want to go on a hut trip i'm like well how's it compared to frog like well i mean nothing compares to frog like well then uh, i'm good i'm just gonna go. <laughs> and i'll give a frog shout out Lake. to our i'll give her shout out to our crew too because we had a really eclectic cool mix of people which i think makes a hut trip even better totally yeah you know you could it, we could have stacked a trip with a whole bunch of rad skiers and snowboarders but we were a mixed bag so to say, back. we even had a telly skier. Yeah, we had someone still on tellies, the dinosaur. Telly Savalas. Yeah, Telly Savalas was there, and uh, <laughs> and we also had a very exceptionally and exceptional and accomplished chef that was on the trip. So we were eating fat. Holy cow, the yeah, food was good. That was some of the best food I've ever had in my life. And well, we hiked it in. We hiked it in, and we cooked it. Well, I didn't cook it, but uh, <laughs> Stewie did. Stuart, what's his last name? Bri Brioza? Yeah. He I mean, is, he, he's Atomic Stew on Instagram, by the way. He's one of North America's best chefs. He's, and he it, shreds. Yeah, Brioza. And he shreds. And this guy, I, I was fascinated by his, he was talking his all really about cool. anchovies. He's like well, a big well, anchovy. Well, let's give his restaurants a plug. He owns uh, State Bird. And which State Bird it, Provisions. Uh, yeah, I believe State Bird is the name of one restaurant, and another another one is something Provisions. The progress. The progress. Uh, the progress. They're both in San Francisco, and then right? uh, yeah, Michelin star type stuff, and then yeah. uh, and then the the anchovy place is called the Anchovy Bar, and it's an anchovy bar, and the, it's a wine bar with anchovies. And I, I haven't been to any of these restaurants yet, but I, I'm dying to go after, well, after with that this experience. Weekend. I yeah. yeah, I mean, we were spoiled rotten on that one. Like to have Stuart with us to cook for us, and and the Frog Lake Huts has this like full on commercial kitchen with all of everything. Yeah, it did. You it, need. We finally did that kitchen ju justice. Yeah, and I like to give a, a, a shout out to Billy from Dragonfly, who was a consulting person on putting that kitchen together. Uh, it's special. Like that's a really unique thing to have that level of a of a facility in the backcountry and a hut that has a kitchen like that, you know it's got a it's got a commercial hood. There's a it's a commercial kitchen. Yeah, like you could cook for a restaurant out yeah. of that place. Yeah, and it's uh, a historic building. So uh, the property was previously owned by I think is the Eschenbacher family. So he uh, I think. I, don't, I might get his first name wrong. Robert, maybe Eschenbacher. He invented the modern GPS, like basically the Garmin device. Like, oh, the, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, like for for like consumer grade GPS. Like he was the person who pioneered a lot of that stuff, and so they owned that property. And then I guess I don't know if it was like a a, a sale. I guess it, it was they sold it to the to the Truckee Donner, 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 Donner Land, Land Trust. Got land it. Trust. Yeah, and they've. 
done a multi-year um, improvement project on that property. The lodge is amazing. It's stone. It's a stone lodge. Stone lodge that's old, built a while ago. I don't know how long, but it it's beautiful, man. Beautiful craftsmanship. And then um, it was cool. Our, we could actually see it this year. Yeah, last year we couldn't see into it. Was, it. it was we buried. couldn't see into it or out of it. It was like a cave because of how much snow there was. But this year, because the snowpack's been lower, we were actually able to like look out the windows and you're looking right at the Frog Lake Cliffs. Um, you know, for this episode, we'll post up some pictures. Tom took some amazing pictures, but like the cliffs are just insane, majestic, and you're looking right at them out the front window. It's a cool, and I like the fact that that as they develop that project, it is a really neat blend of historic with modern and that the, the original stone house is historic. Yep. I think that that was a, I think the first, even before that family owned it, it was someone was like a sheep herder or a, like they used to run something up there mm -hmm. and that's what they would use it for. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you have that, you have the historic building, which has been renovated very tastefully with, with an eye still on the historical aspect of it. And yeah, then Dan Goddard, a and friend then, of ours, yeah, then Dan the contractor was the con on that. And then Dan built then the modern, like where you actually sleep are these sort of modular, smaller, uh, they're almost like, you know, like a tiny house almost, you know, they're very modern and well, well done, very well insulated. Bathroom. They've got fart fans. Like, yeah, insulation, you know, they, ventilation. Ventilation, yeah. I mean, it's like for seven stinky ski or snowboarders like they, they're they're really well situated yeah. and like top notch like i can't i can't speak highly enough of how well that place is set up so yeah we got in there and we had the dinner and then and then the next day we skied all day and i'll say that we stepped our program up just a little bit we did we, we got know, more aggressive we had noticed that there had been some settlement and you can see that around the bases of trees yeah you know that is one indication that there's been settlement happening there had been some settlement that had occurred. Uh, and then, you know, as we sort of pushed into some new terrain, uh, we weren't experiencing any woomfing. And that, you know, gave me some more confidence. And we got a fun run in and some steeper terrain. Uh, maybe called that avalanche terrain, you know. For sure. Uh, yeah, and I would then, consider you know, that. sort of ramped up our program from there. And we eventually got over and skied the main Frog Lake Coulard that after, you know, the second round that day. And, uh, you know, had a good, really good day. No wind, sunny, beautiful day. Beautiful the, day. Beautiful it was day. warm. It got warm. Beautiful day in the Sierras. Warm, abnormally warm. That was yeah. the one thing. Is as, that a concern for you with snow and, and potential instability so that's when what, it warms that fast? That's what made me nervous on the first day when we were there, is that the, there was a third sign to me that first day when we got in there, mm -hmm. because we had Boomfang. Uh, there were signs of natural avalanches. And then after you remember, as we went up and topped out on the, at the top of you know at horse to do our first run that day, that all the know, ice was melting. The ice was melting off the trees, and we were all very we were like taking our layers off. And I'm like, well, there's some rapid warming going on. Yes, rapid warming after fresh snowfall is definitely a concern. Yeah, that is another sign. So that's why we kept things mellow that first day. Yeah, and so the second day we ramped up the program a little bit, and. Uh, and we're patient with it. And, uh, you know, I, 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 we did not dig a pit, uh, but I did a lot of hasty pits, a lot of what I call sniffing and poking. 
And uh, what's a hasty pit? A hasty pit is just something that you can do as you go along the skin track and you use your poles and you just sort of, you know, dig into the snow yeah, and sort of see what's going on just in the top two feet. You're not going much deeper than that. Do you get? Uh, do you, can you get a good gauge? Do you feel like you can get a good gauge generally of what a snowpack feels like by just poking your ski pole as far down as you can? Yes, that is a data point. Yes, yeah. you know. And you, what are you feeling for? Punchiness. All kinds of gaps. Things. All kinds of things. Yeah. You know, crusts for one. Uh, density changes. Yeah. And uh, and then a hollow feeling is it hollow mm-hmm. and that is a sign of, of like st- stiff windboard mm-hmm. you can tell a lot with your poles yeah you know and i think that that's a skill that is developed over time yeah you know when you do dig a lot of pits and you do spend a lot of time in the snow you start gaining more knowledge in that sense and that you just pick up you can pick a lot up just walking around yeah yeah uh so yeah so second day we ramped things up and had a great day what I loved about the second day, by the way, was the three. We did three laps, and all three laps were within eye shot of the huts. Yep, we were within eye shot the whole day. We were skiing yeah, off we the shoulder of the cliff. We didn't have cliff. to go far. No, you skinned across the lake in five minutes, and you were on the on the uh, climb to the yep. what you were going to ski, which I thought was amazing. Yeah, and I'll say our our pace was a little bit mel- mellow. It was mellow. Than, it, I liked mellower it. than it normally is, but it was. I'm still sort of recovering from some body uh, issues and we had a mellower pace with the crew and that I was totally fine with that. Yeah. Cause it wasn't like we were like last year when we were out there, you and me, it was, we I dumped was, five was, feet of snow on it. I was frothing. You at were the frothing mouth. at Palbot was froth bot frothing <laughs> at the mouth. We, we were skiing with, uh, with, uh, Nick Russell and Taylor and his crew from Truckee and everyone was just like, we got to get it. And it was just all day. And it was like a lot of vert. And yeah. this it, this pro this year was like for me. It's you know my two experiences there was like a, a 180. It was the opposite. It was like way mellow pace, yep. different snow conditions, uh, beautiful weather. I mean, I was able to for the for the first time see where we were. I could see Lola. I could see Basin Peak and the ridge and like yep, really Carpenter and. Yeah, understand had, where I was. We had great you know? visuals. Yeah. And, you know, that was something that I had a nice conversation with Stuart on and that he, you know, he hasn't spent a lot of time touring around in the Alpine. And, you know, I was trying to give him some perspective on it. And I just said that, you know, it's so special when you sort of are cruising through an environment that is it's somewhat inhospitable for us to be there, but you know, we've got all this great gear and it allows us to be out there and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And, and sort of something special in the Alpine sort of, uh, opens up in front of your eyes and, and it's always constantly changing. You know, the snow is moving and it's the light, the play of light and snow and, you know, what we had was we had all this ice that had formed on all the trees. Yeah, it was And it was, you crazy. know, trink, like there were these little rings of ice that had fallen down and were at the base of all the trees uh, from, you know, the days when it would warm up a little bit and it would come off. And it just gave, it was just great visuals. Yeah. And it's just really neat to be able to tour around. That's the thing that I love about ski touring is that it lets you sort of really immerse yourself in that alpine environment. Yeah. And and experience something that might not then be there an hour or two or a day later. Right. And you feel like you've captured, like 
your soul has been able to capture a little bit of that. Totally. And you absorb it. And, uh, yeah, that was something that I think that he walked away with from that experience. That is, is something that I live for, Yeah, you know, like, cause I can say that I, my happiest place is walking around the Alpine. Well, I, and I, for me, like, you know, the difference between a skin track and a single track is a single track is there in, in the woods and it is a path through the forest that you kind of have to stay on if you want, if you don't want to have a, uh, you know, like a struggle, mm-hmm. so to speak. But when you're skinning, a skin track is kind of art, man. It's like in a way you, you create uh, a, a path that you have open range. You can go pretty much anywhere as long as it's safe, right? And you know yep. what's safe and what is reasonable and what you can do. But it's like a kind of a canvas. There's really not a lot of limit to what you can, where you can go if yep. you know how to do it, right? There's an art form to yeah. it. And there's totally. there's a way to make it so that's not too steep or, yeah. you know, and there's also... Okay. <laughs> the Powbot skin track. So one of the skin yeah. tracks that, and you know, it was, it was, it was necessary. Like this one face that was on the kind of, I guess it'd be south of the huts. It's a north facing aspect, super steep. Tad, tadpole peak. Tadpole is what John and Jess, the hut masters call it. But Powbot put in the skinner and it was steep, man, with a lot of switchbacks, which it needed to be. But the thing is like... I, and the thing, I don't know what it is, but all my friends are split borders. Like I'm a skier with split borders and I, you know, John, uh, John Paluska, our other, there were two skiers on this trip, seven total, five snowboarders. John was on tele skis. I was on regular skis and the switchbacks were so tight, man. And I was just like getting hung up in those switchbacks. Cause you know, split boards are short. So like, it's like trying to, I was saying, it's well, like not, trying to get not ex- mine, but it's like trying to get an extended cab pickup truck around a switchback made for a Miata, you know, and you're on like a 40 degree slope and you're like, Oh my God, dude, this is brutal. I, I knew, I knew that you guys were cursing me back there. A, a little bit, a little bit, but it was necessary. To, but getting back you know, to kinda. that, like, you know, but I, here's the other thing that I was going to mention is that, you know, part of the reason I, that's that skin line went a certain way is I was trying to preserve the skiing. Correct. Yep. You know, so that we that in that way you can have an unin, Un, uninterrupted run yes. down through powder and not have to ollie over the skin track. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Which is a very considerate thing to do when you can do it right. Yeah. It's yeah. one of the reasons why the skin tracks on the West Shore are so steep. Right. And it <laughs> yeah. also keeps people who probably, it's a gatekeeper of sorts, you know? It's like if be. you can't skin that, then you shouldn't be on the mountain, really. It can be. You need to practice more. Um, one thing that I find funny with the Frog Lake huts is that the, at least the two times we've been there, it always seems like it's so hard to get a reservation there, but then you show up and nobody's yeah, there. Yeah, let's talk about that one a little like, bit. What's that all about? Like people book this thing and then they don't show up. It's so hard. Like that. So I got that reservation on the morning that they were released. And I sat there and was just like trying to get Pearl Jam like, tickets. Yeah, it's like Pearl Jam it's tickets. It's like trying to get yeah. Grateful Dead tickets back in the day. Right. And, and, you know, was pressing the button. I just took whatever I could get. And I right. got this trip that we just went on. And then I got one more in February. But it's just for two people. Uh, and that's what I, w- I was able to secure this year. And it's so hard to get. But it sounds like there's a ton of cancellations. And I think that this year with the snowpack and obviously everything that's going out on the socials and people are seeing these pictures and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're sort of scared to go in there. Uh, there's been a ton of unused time there 
this, it seems like this year. And even last year, I think the last year they had a lot of it due to weather that people didn't want to push in there uh, yeah. and go in with weather. It's, I think it's just still sort of sorting, it's sorting itself out. And uh, it's new. Right? It's new. I mean, it's three years in now. Yeah. And uh, I think that the land trust is liking the fact that people are hiring guides to go in there and that there's, I think that a lot of the business now is guided uh, yeah. or not. It's, and that's the thing is it shouldn't be a business. That's the one that I guess I do have an issue with that. Here's my ass rant. Let's hear the Palbot rant about, <laughs> and, go ahead. you know, and I ranted, I, I sent a message and email to people at the land trust after my first trip out there and expressed my concern over the fact that that's that facility is world-class and that the guide companies are going to book it solid to then make a buck off what is technically a public facility i don't know like is because it's a i don't know is a land i don't know how that works funded by donors it's funded by donors so it's funded by donors and so people are turning uh a donated thing into a profitable business. And I had, I was like, don't, I I said, please, my message basically was like, please don't let the guide companies completely book this place so that certain groups of core lords from Tahoe, there's a, there's a number of of us, you know, that know about that place and that love going out there. And I was like, don't make it so that it's so hard for the local people to still pay the same amount of money or to book it. And we're not looking to make a buck off of it. And we can go in there and self-guide ourselves. Right. And I think that the land trust, though, was a little nervous about the terrain there. and Rightfully and what, so. Rightfully so, because it is real. And somehow or another, they've gotten themselves into a situation where there's some of those cabins are not being utilized. And I think that some, of the, the, some guides are booking them and then not selling the trips. And then just let, being like, oops, well, I guess I'll just eat this one. And then the next one, they're just going to make their money back. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been getting emails from the hut master on, on, you know, Hey, do you want to come out? You want to come out? These people are, and it's been, I, I could have spent my entire winter out there so far, which I probably would have had a better winter going, <laughs> but I was too busy riding my mountain bike through December. Yeah. But you know, I think with the poor snowfall and then with, you know, with weather and all these other, I think that there's just a lot of like, whatever the reason is, if it, because it's hard to get out there, you have to walk out there, you know, now the guide companies are offering a porter service so that you can hire them to freaking porter your stuff in there. Oh man. You know, and like, uh, I don't know about that. I feel like I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know how I feel about a few, like, I don't know how I feel about the porter service. And I don't, I also don't know how I feel about the fact that you can't, or they frown upon like sled access. I mean, I guess I get it. It depends on what you're trying to go for. But, you know, you have this um, amazing world-class facility that's challenging to get to. And it's at least in the onset, maybe they just need to dial in their ops uh, a little more with time. But like, it just seems like there's um, a lot of buzz around it initially when it launched yep. and all this demand. Right so, it's rad. The demand is, and but the demand is there, but it's not there. Cause then you get there and you realize this place is half empty. It, uh, on paper, it was booked out, but it's it's half empty. Yeah, which it was on this trip again. I don't know. It's there. That's my ass rant on this one. And like, I just think they need some more time to sort it out. And uh, 
and figure out who their real user groups are yeah and 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 sort out some of the issues of it being used but not used I mean, you know, or I maybe, guess they're still making, they, they, they don't people, I guess if you, if you cancel within 30 days, you get, you get 20% of your money back or something. So you just might as well go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, <laughs> you it's, know? Well, the thing about it is that like, even if the conditions aren't great, the facility it's still a great is experience. amazing. Yeah, that's, that's and, okay. And then it's here, worth the trip it, just to stay in the hut. Totally. And, and then here's you know? my other rant on the, on this one is that it should be, if anyone can give the land trust feedback on this one, because I know they've heard it a bunch, but there should be options for another night or two. Like only two nights is too short because yeah. the, what it turns into is it turns into, you have an entry day and only if you're like us and you're totally dialed, do you even ski at all on that first day? Right. You know, most people just get, get we, there and pass we, out. We heard stories of people taking 10 hours to get in there. Right. Right. You know? <laughs> Finishing in the dark. Yeah. And, yeah. But like, you know, you have an entry day, then you have one day to ski. Yeah. And then you have your exit. Then you have another day to maybe ski some, some more, and then you have to exit. So like, I think it would be rad, you know, coming from someone who's been to hot trips in Canada for more than 10 years, uh, it's nice to go in there and like, it's such a great facility to check out at that. It would be really nice to unplug for If you're going to make all that effort to get in there, you should be able to stay for another last year. We had an, we had an extra night and it was it totally made the trip. Yeah. There should yeah. be an option for three nights or four nights. Minimum. Yeah. Cause you just, like you said, man, there's the entry day and the exit day and it's, you're carrying gear, all your gear. So you're not really going to be able to maximize your ski experience. So both ends of the trip end up being transport days yep. where like if you could have a five day stay, it would, it would be like, you'd get, I feel like a much more. It just turns that first day into full transport day anyway. Because, I mean, you're, right. you're carrying a little bit more oatmeal, but not enough to slow you, you know, to really change the game that much. Right. But it allows you to stay out there for a little bit longer. Well, I feel like we carried enough food in on that trip that we could have stayed a couple extra days. <laughs> we could have made we could have made all that food last a week. Oh yeah, we had a lot of food, and I was like absolutely gorged last night. Because a lot of times on hut trips, you know, you're just like dreaming about a cheeseburger. Like when I get back to civilization, I'm gonna have the biggest burrito ever. But on this trip, we were just like dining high on the hog. Yeah, you know, and it and I mean, to our credit, we carried it in. I do. I think I do like that aspect of it. It's like you carry in what you know. Like if you carry in the weight, you get to you know reap the benefits, right? Yep. I do like that kind of basic philosophy of life. Is like the, those who do the hard work get the reward. Pack it in, pack it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it really is like for listeners out there. If you have an opportunity to go to frog lake it it can't be higher more highly recommended just know the route in advance and know where you're gonna go and know how to get there it is not easy there are some it's trick it's a little tricky if you've especially if you've never been out there if you know that terrain it's no big deal yeah but if you've never really been out there do some homework or, or hire a guide or hire a guide hire a guide yeah. you know and then i i think that would be a better way for them to go about it is that they would let the people let public book it and then let them hire guides instead of letting the guides book it. That's right. I agree with sell the trip. I don't think the guides should have, and I don't know if guides have preferential access to booking, like they get advanced, you know, booking capability, but if that's the case, they shouldn't like, I don't like, this is for the public, man. Like 
the public should book it. And then if they feel like they need a guide, then they can hire the guide. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I I don't know. I don't, the land trust can probably do whatever the whatever they want with it. Well, they can. They can do whatever uh, they, they want. can do whatever they want. Yeah, with they it. Yeah, they can but, do whatever they want, uh, and that's fine. It, it, it's an amazing place. I'm so I'm spoiled, we're sold. We're, spoiled for life. We're gonna try to go every year. Like totally spoiled for life. Like I'm gonna be. I'm gonna judge every other hut trip that I get invited on on like how's it compared to Frog Lake? Because you know. I, like I've mentioned this before, like I'm not, I am not hardcore like you are and some of your friends. Like I'm a more fair, I wouldn't say fair weather skier, but like, I like, I like knowing what I'm stepping into and I don't need to be in like, you know, if it's going to be pretty laid out and dialed for me out of the gate and I don't have to do a lot of guesswork or if it's not going to be like, yep. I don't know, in a yurt with no ventilation for five days and five other people who I don't really know. Or I, snow like, camping. I'm good. I'll just stay home and ski in my backyard. Like, I, yeah, or snow camping. Not a big snow camping fan. I love camping. Snow camping. I'm, I'm not a mountaineer, dude. I'm, you're not going to see me on the, the base camp of Everest ever anywhere. Like, I just don't need to do that. Maybe if the weather's really favorable, I would do it. But um, yeah, I'm just not that hardcore on the winter side of that type of stuff. So a thing like Frog Lake for me is like a no brainer because it's just so nice. It's like a vacation, you know, that's like pretty world It's a great way to go with snow camping in the wintertime. <laughs> it's the best kind it's of snow plush. camping. It's plush. Camping. It's pretty plush. And it's close to, that was the other thing is like when we got dropped off here at your family house here in Tahoe Donner, literally as the crow flies, we're probably like five miles, six miles from that place. Yep. It felt like a hundred miles away. Yeah. It's a good, it's pretty cool. So let's get back to the Abby, some Abby things here a little bit. Yeah. What else do you have? We should probably wrap pretty soon because you need to go get a haircut before your trip. What what time is it? Yeah, I do got that going. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I miss your haircut. I I guess maybe let's just talk about our kits a little bit on this trip, you know? Okay. And, and, uh, you know, we had a full crew. Everybody had their beacon shovel probe. Yeah. We had radios. Yeah. We had first aid. Radios are critical. We had radios. Radios were super helpful. Yeah. Uh, beacons. Where do, where do you wear your beacon? I wear my beacon in my pocket of my shorts. That's a good pocket of your pants. Sorry, my pants. Shorts. <laughs> Not my shorts. Yeah. yeah which is, skiing, a, which is a great place. That's a great place pants to wear. Pants pocket. That's a great place to wear a beacon. I know a lot of guides in Canada that that is their their preferred place to carry their beacon and is there something that's securing it in your pocket is there like uh, i have you, a, I have a have belt loop that i hook the i have a carabiner on Perfect. the rope to the beacon yep. so if it does come out it's secured and i'll say that that is a preferred way to carry your beacon in in uh in regards to a scenario because you have super it's easy to get super to. it's the fastest access yes. to a beacon in an accident. Yes. And that's a great place to wear it. And I, I there was a number of years where I, that's where I wore mine, but I would kept having issues of, uh, because I'm a snowboarder and I sometimes carry my board in my right and, 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 you know, carry it in my hand uh-huh. that the board was rubbing on the ski pants mm-hmm. and hitting the sharp edge of the beacon. And I was getting wear, wear or sort of wear through tears in mm-hmm. my pants. Mm-hmm. And so I went back to wearing my beacon on my body. Like under your jacket on a, on a, like one of those, uh, holster things. Yeah. So I have, uh, an older holster that I really enjoy and, you know, obviously it's really good to wear your beacon, uh, on, on up, you know, above your first layer. So I'm always wearing this, this one particular layer that I love. 
and then I'll have my beacon on and then I'll have another layer over that. You never wear, you want to wear your beacon on the outside of your clothing. That's Why? a no, no, because if you are in an avalanche, then it could actually get damaged. It, it will, it is a little more protected gotcha. under a, under a layer of clothing. Yep. And it can't get ripped. It can't catch on something and then get ripped off or so on and so forth. And that is the one thing that some people say about the pant method is that you can get pants in an avalanche. I mean, I'm wearing uh, bibs. Yeah. I mean, unless they literally tore the fabric out from under, uh, I guess, I mean, I don't know if I, yeah. I feel like if I, if my pants are getting ripped off my body in an avalanche, yeah, I don't know what my chances are going to be. Anyway, we're, we're talking about it. This is a, these are good yeah. things to recap on. I think for me, we're in the midst. We have been in the midst of a cycle. And then what, uh, what kind of shovel do you have? I have a black diamond shovel. And is it metal? It's, oh yeah. Perfect. It's metal for sure. Yep. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's, it could be, have, it could have a bigger shovel head, I feel like, but it's easy to pop up. Like it has the collapsible handle, right? Like little push button, mm-hmm. pop in, pop out, super easy. Um, I have a pocket on the outside of my um, my pack that has a like a little slot for the probe. So literally, you pull a zipper and the probe flies. You can pull it right out of the pack without even yep. dicking around. You know, so I can deploy the tools quickly. Good. Um, and having the I don't know I've I've tried wearing the beacon on a on a sling or whatever you know under a jacket and I just I don't know man I just feel like I'm like fumbling with things if I need to get to it quick. And it's like extra strapping that you have that I'm, I, I don't know. I just never, I just, it just seems so easy to just put it in my pocket. I know it's there. I can feel it. It's secured. I pull a zipper. It's there. Yep. You know? Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Metal shovel is super important. Are there small plastic shovels? They're, I thought all of them were metal. No, they were, their plastic shovels were made back in the day. Oh, okay. And they're, they're, <laughs> they're good for building like a, like a snow course for your kids in your backyard. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then even probes too. It's really good to, to make sure that your probe is uh, appropriate, is the appropriate size and not one of like the super lightweight, pinchy probes. Uh, you know, yeah. And being and able it, to throw that thing and pull the cable. I think that was another thing that maybe some people don't realize is like, Practice, practice throwing the thing and then pulling the cable and catch it. And so all the pieces engage, you know what I mean? Yeah, so you're de- not having to your like... Your deployment is key. It's yeah. super important. That's That'll save the, you a lot of that's time. That's part of the whole thing of what I mentioned about taking a, you know, just a refresher one day. Right. It's Those are helpful for that and making sure all your stuff works. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing that I'd like to do in regards to gear uh, is... Actually, it's not really gear you carry when you're in the backcountry, but in prep preparation for going out each season as a refresher, like you mentioned, is reading. So, uh, staying alive in avalanche terrain, mm-hmm. the book by Bruce, Bruce Tempter, Tem- yeah, that's an amazing book. I read that pretty much every year, just as a refresher, just to you know stay fresh with like knowledge. Um, and then snow, uh, snow science, snow science. I can't remember the snow sense. I have that book mm-hmm. too. That's another good one. So just like reading material, just like, you know, getting fired up. You know how people get fired up for ski skis by watching like the latest ski films and stuff. Maybe get fired up for ski season by reading a book. You yeah, know, brush read up your, on your annual book. avalanche book, you know. Um, it's good. That's a good call. Good knowledge to have. Yeah. Yeah, as I'll say, even though things have settled down here a little bit in Tahoe this week, <laughs> like avalanche season isn't over. 
No, it's, I, it's never definitely over. down further south too in the Sierra. Yeah, they're still in for it as we get more snow. Yeah, things really need to flush down there. Yeah. Uh, well, there was the Eastern Sierra Avalanche Center had a post. I don't know if you saw it the other day of them. I think a couple of their forecasters out walking around in the snow and they were just skinning on a ridge and a massive settlement happened and they set off this huge slide. Sympathetically triggered something yes. around the corner. And they were videoing it when it happened. Oh, wow. I didn't see that. And it was like, oh my yeah, God. That's, like that's, that's Utah stuff right there. Ser- yes. Serious. Serious. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'll just, there's a lot to learn through this week. And, uh, you know, uh, it, we had the tragedy and that's, you know, we got to, we got to, you know, digest that one. Uh, yeah. But still, there's still a lot to look at and, and, and learn from what we've gone through this week and what we're going to continue to go through with having a shallow sort of touch and go snowpack this season. Yeah. You know, everyone play, needs to play this one patiently and smart. I think that that's the, been the big les- lesson this week is just be patient with this. It's going to, it'll work itself out. Uh, but, you know, don't, don't be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And don't be jumping on a, a line just because you want, you think it's, you know, rad to ski it. Like, is it the right time to ski it? Is right. the question you should be asking yourself. And don't, and like, we didn't really dive into that uh, Stevens Pass story too much. People should read that story because it talks all about groupthink. Um, yeah, the group dynamic thing. The is group big. dynamic. Yep. It's a big trap for people. People just decide there's an expert and they're going to listen to the expert, but the expert might make a bad judgment call and then leads the whole group into trouble. And so just, you know, knowing that whole dynamic of groupthink is really important because that catches a lot of people. Yep. That catches a lot of people. Yeah, it's been interesting this this week. It's been a whole lot of very obvious avalanche danger. Yeah. So I think that the group dynamic has been minimized a little bit. Yeah. You know, there wasn't at any point on our trip this week where if someone was nervous or didn't want to do something like there was like the rest of the group wasn't like, come on, man, let's shred this. Like right. it, it's been very obvious that, yeah. you know, we need to be careful as we tour around in the mountains right now. But you know, as stability grows and confidence grows, I think that's where the group dynamic thing comes more into play. Totally. You know, because yeah. people have different different levels of risk maybe for that moment. Well, and there's statistically speaking, right, the most avalanche incidents involving people happen on the days when the avalanche forecast is moderate. Not yep. considerable, not high, because people are on high. It's kind of like trails. Like we, we, one thing I've learned with trails is like the the most injuries on trails happen not on the most technical gnarly trails. It's on the like the intermediate grade trails because people's guards are down, yep. and they're not considering the fact they're going probably faster than they should be, and something happens. Whereas on a technical trail, they either walk it or they're going really slow, and they're, they're fully tuned into the fully moment. tuned on it. Yeah, yep, yeah. And that's how I felt like I entered this week. You know, I, I did one day backcountry before we went into the hut. So I've been in the backcountry four days this week. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, but I went into it with <laughs> fully focused on what's going on. Yeah. Uh, well, I look Anything forward to else? seeing you here in a couple of weeks, buddy. I know. You're you're going to be just riding high on cloud nine. I hope so. Eat a lot of ramen while you're there. I'm going to eat a ton of ramen. I hope so. And I'm going to I'm going to soak my feet in the onsen. Oh yeah. In the onsen spot every day. Yeah. Nice. I'm going to take advantage of that one. 
Nice. I'm jealous. Yeah, I'm really, really stoked to go experience the Japao thing for my first time and get some. I, I haven't traveled internationally all that much since COVID, which yeah. I used to a lot for surfing. So I'm, I'm excited to go and experience a different culture, and I'm really excited to experience another, a different take on a first world country. Yeah, and sort of really take in the precision of the Japanese way yeah. of how someone's someone's focus and someone's life and someone's work is so singularly focused on doing it a certain way and it's the best way right like that's kind of how i like to shred now <laughs> like <laughs> i think i'm very i think i'm gonna fit in very well oh, yeah, there with how singularly focused i can be on in in my snowboarding and you'd uh, be like bill murray in uh, lost in translation this like international celebrity the, the, the pow bot. bot the pow bot version of it yeah no so i've got i am bringing a ton of swag i've got a bunch of pow bot swag you have I'm your pow bot scraper yeah. <laughs> i am gonna bring a few of my i am bringing pow bot scrapers for the uh uh the owners of the of the hostel that we're staying in and cool. a, and a couple t-shirts and some and some stickers i've got a whole bunch of stickers sweet so yeah i'm, awesome. I'm looking forward to experiencing a, a new culture and and hopefully getting just barreled in japan yeah cool well i think this was a good one yeah uh, good catch up I, you good know catch up I, and... we we kind of had to touch on the Palisades accident and, and, and yeah. talk about that one because it's something that is very, I mean, it made national news, yeah. you know, I made the national ticker and, uh, you know, it really was, you know, too bad. And, and I hope that the community can recover from this and that's, and that Palisades can recover from this as well and move on and still provide, you know, the skiing that we all want to do there. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like I think somebody had mentioned it, we're all just trying to have fun. You know, we're, we're doing this to go have a good time and have fun and be outside. And when someone dies, it's just, it's tragic. And it, and it's, it's, nobody wants to live through that, um, and see that happen before them. And, you know, we're, we're just watching this whole thing yeah. from a distance and I it don't want to try and pass judgment on yeah. anything or anyone. I, you know, naturally have questions, but like at the end of the day, my it, my opinion about this stuff our opinion we just we're, we're not trying to be judgmental we're yep. just trying to share knowledge and learnings from these things so that hopefully doesn't happen again you know but that's all we can really do and not over analyze it and let the experts who live this life every day handle the situation yeah you know, and keep us safe out there and we appreciate all the people who are out there, who work ski patrol, who work wilderness medicine, EMT, first aid, doctors, nurses, like all the people out there who are keeping us safe. Like, And how about, a, how about a shout out to all the bystanders that jumped into action there too Yeah, on yeah. that day. And they, they had, everyone on scene jumped into, uh, jumped into action. Yeah. Yep. Anyhow, anything else before we close? I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah. No, let's. All right. Wrap this one up, number Wrap thirty. It and, up, number thirty. And let's do thirty-one with a call-in. Yes, thirty-one call in with from a Japan. Call in. Me and Snoop will check in from from Japan, <laughs> right and hopefully you guys can keep getting it here. It looks like there's going to be a little, you know, you guys got some wet snow coming. There's some heavy wet snow coming. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we'll finally have some base by the time I get back. <laughs> right. That's what I'm hoping for. Better late than never. Well, thanks everybody for listening to episode number thirty of Mind the Track. We hope you stay safe out there. And until next time, get out there, get deep, 
and put your mind in the track. 